out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special case. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Athens Space Band in Georgia, United States of America. It is going to be Cylon because I recently spoke to Michael Luchowski to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, actually it was about 20 minutes, <laughs> that's been edited out, aren't you lucky? We got down to that very exciting subject that was the early musical years of the young Michael. And also just to say that um, they have got a new box set that has just come out. Um, this is Cylon, that we talk about. This just came out in November 2020 for those who are looking for that ideal present gift for Christmas or just next year. Anyway, yes, Michael, tell us more about those early formative years, please, now. Um, well, I, I didn't get my musical cues from television um, or really um, commercial radio. Um, and I started buying music uh when I was in grade school and I bought things like three dog night and, um, uh, sort of found my way into like heavy metal and psychedelic, um, uh, stuff little by little. I, I did listen to some, um, college radio that was brand new at the time. Um, I, I grew up in the Atlanta area and, uh, uh, Georgia technical Institute. Uh, which is a part of the state university, had one of the earliest um, FM uh, radio stations. So it was commercial free. It was very progressive and eclectic. <clears throat> and um, another one started up a few years later. So I got some of my information from that. Um, but I guess around the, by the, by the age of... Um, 16 or so i was listening to alice cooper I, I, I went to see alice cooper live a couple times for like the love it uh, i mean um let's see which tours uh the killer album and also the billion dollar babies album and i was a big fan of also uh, frank zappa and I, I went to see frank zappa live and i was buying a lot of the usual records like black sabbath and pink floyd and whatever i did see pink floyd live uh for the um um dark side of the moon tour and i think yes was the opening band and i saw in the mix of things i saw blood rock and um uh spirit my god randy california this is randy california and ed cassidy on drums isn't it and uh uh, uh, Spirit, yeah, I don't know that much about them except for one album, but um, The Twelve Dreams of Doctors, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, which I love. I still listen to it a fair amount, Nature. but um, I and I still listen to Alice Cooper, you know, I still like it. But um, around the time I was 18, I was going into college, was around the time that I was realizing that I was I was sort of losing my way, I didn't really know what to be listening to. I, didn't really know where to get um, the right information. I didn't have older siblings. I didn't have that many friends that were heavily into music because I, I definitely missed some stuff. Like, um, you know, thankfully I did discover craft work and 
some other things that were happening in their time. But there's some music that just wasn't on my radar. I'm not so sure if I would have enjoyed it or, or responded to it. But I was not paying any attention during Velvet Underground. I don't think I would have liked them anyway. But um, uh, I, I sort of missed out on the earlier periods of glam rock. And um, it wasn't really until the Ramones and Kraftwerk and the Stranglers and some bands like that that I finally started, you know, getting back into the uh, throes of like, enjoying music as it was being released. Yes. Um, and um, before that, you know, I was just, uh, I was listening to like George Harrison solo albums and, you know, uh, just jazz even. I was just trying to find some different things, you know, other than Frank Zappa and some of the stuff I'd just gotten tired of. So did you come from a musical family at all? Were your parents at all musical? No, my family, um, they weren't that musical, although my mom grew up playing piano and played the organ in church and that kind of thing. Um, no, I just grew up with um, some, you know, blue collar, you know, people without a lot of us uh, uh, knowledge of different of, of culture, really. They didn't really get into that. So that I was sort of the, um, you know, the at the forefront from my family, at least to go into culture. I went into uh, art school. And I uh, was very interested in music, uh, reading, uh, film, and all that kind of, all those good mid-70s, post-Vietnam War college experiences. You know, I went to protests and uh, anti-war protests and things like that when I was 15 because I was terrified of being uh, drafted. Well, quite, um, yes. But, um I think I was 17 when the um, Vietnam War ended. So I, you know, um, escaped uh, that whole trauma. But uh, I was taking part in the um, general atmosphere of the of the culture at the time, even though I was a little bit young. You know, I was I was going to uh, events like that um, in downtown Atlanta. Well, I was always a bit surprised with the, the Vietnam War when I sort of remember, I suppose years ago, sort of looking and, you know, I was probably watching documentaries and, and didn't rely, you know, because I always looked at it as a 60s thing. And then one day it was like, God, it went on right into the 70s. It was, it, you know, I was quite young at the time, so it wasn't really, I wasn't watching the news. But looking back on it, you know, one, I was a bit surprised how long it went into the 70s, basically. So. Yeah, and being in America, I mean, that was a war that was televised, you know, so it was uh, pretty terrifying to just grow up and have, like, television coverage, you know, right there in, um, in the war zones and such. It was, it was a very grim period, um, and there was a lot of agitation on the part of, uh, you know, the elite, I guess you'd call them, the college students and stuff like that, but anyway, that they seemed like they were the cultural um, leaders of the time. And that's sort of where I, I went along with that. Yes. So were you starting to become more sort of aware of what contemporary music scenes there were? Because you mentioned the Stranglers and obviously kind of 78, no, 76, you know, the Ramones came along and then we had the Damned in the UK. And then, you know, obviously the Sex Pistols, 77. And, and 
And I just wondered when did you sort of, when did the band start to form at that, this kind of period? And, and when did you pick up a, a musical instrument and think I'm going to play music and not just be a covers band, which is very, um, what most people- It was do. right, it was right around 76 and seven. Um, what happened is that um, uh, being in the art school, uh, it started to gel in the art school that there was, uh, I mean, first of all, we had a very, kind of fun and robust uh, party scene with, with the art sort of crowd. It, and there were a lot of people that were not directly involved in the art school that were part of that crowd, but that was, that was kind of where the initial energy came from, I believe. And, um, and music was shared at these parties. And so anybody, and then, and then outside from parties, um, my my roommate was Randy. He was he was our guitar player in Pylon, and he wanted um, it was his idea that he and I would start a band. But this was in that was a little later. That was more like in '78. Um, but in '76 and '77, we were listening to things like um, that we discovered in our local record store, and um, the store was called Chapter Three Records, and there was also one in Atlanta that we. Um, went to a lot for um, used records uh, and um, called Wax and Facts. And there was another record, a uh, used record store in um, Athens called Wax Street. But <clears throat> finding new music was still a matter of going into the store and um, getting recommendations from the guys that worked there. And they worked real closely with their import distributors. So a lot of it was coming from the UK and other and then also across america and we were reading what we could read you know we would read enemy and melody maker and um the village voice out of new york city and um interview magazine um had you know covered music a little bit too glenn o'brien wrote for them what about and, cream, what about cream magazine did you sort of were you one of those people no, I don't know cream. why. I don't know why Cream just didn't appeal to me. I, I don't remember hardly anybody talking about it or reading it. I don't know why we skipped that one over. It was available, you know. Right. I, don't, I really don't know why. And then also out of New York was New York Rocker. So that was sort of like talking to people in America. A lot of the UK magazines are a little difficult for us to follow because the scenes were so specific and um you know a lot of the references were difficult for us to completely follow you're talking about weekly magazines that just you know had so much content it was a little difficult for us to um connect it to music or anything we were hearing or experiencing in our own lives but new york rocker was coming out of new york and so it's very american or new york uh, focused and those are uh, groups and records, you know, that we could access, you know, fairly readily. So was that so, particular, was that co covering that sort of the punk and CBGBs and Max's Kansas City scene, like, you know, television and Talking Heads and Blondie and the Ramones? Yeah, but they, but, you know, they covered, um, they covered the smaller scenes, you know, so at the time we kind of thought that music was going to be coming from everywhere because, you know, Devo was from, wherever ohio or something and um pair ubu was from cleveland ohio uh there were bands from uh minneapolis and um and, and different parts of the u.s so we didn't 
necessarily associate it just with New York or or uh, London or for instance, you know. Um, we were just kind of happy to get new music wherever it was wherever it was coming from. And the guys at the record store did play a big role. I mean, we would go in there. And so Randy and I worked together to like not duplicate our own purchases, you know, like so that we could maximize the amount of music that we would have in our apartment because we took turns, you know, buying records by certain groups or whatever. Or each of us had groups that we kind of preferred more so than the other guy. And uh, so we built together like two different record collections that didn't have a lot of overlap. And that way we could, um, we could hear even more music at home. And then friends would drop by if they had bought a couple singles, they might just come by and we would sit there and drink beer and listen to the singles, you know, five times. Yes, which you do. That which is always much more fun. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great, it's, it's a great moments. So when you picked up, you, you were on the bass. I mean, was this something that you were just like, as a lot of people going, oh, we need a bass player, actually, you better learn. Or had you already started playing an instrument? Oh, no, not at all. Um, <clears throat> now, this is where us being art students really comes into the story because um, we were very into music, listening to it as part of our scene, as part of our culture, um, our parties and all that stuff. But we were mainly thinking about art all the time. And I was a photography major, but I was kind of bored in my program. So I was very ambitious outside of photography and drawing and printmaking and taking independent study classes and things like that, because I had a lot of extra credit hours from exempting a bunch of academic stuff and um, Randy <clears throat> and I encouraged each other to go outside of the, uh, uh, the the boundaries you know of our own study so he was a sculpture major and then he wanted to switch over to photography but they wouldn't accept him into the department so he was frustrated with that and then he just said would you know would you give me critiques that you know we'll just I gave him critiques at our kitchen table on his Polaroid photography. And so it was in that kind of spirit that um, he was encouraging me at one point to, that we should maybe consider making music because we were, we had gotten comfortable and had some success and entering some exhibitions and things and getting some positive feedback from jurors that were coming from um, bigger cities and such. And and we we felt confident that we could do stuff whether we were trained to do it or not. So he said, let's start a band because the B-52s have moved away and somebody needs to have a band in Athens. And um, I was actually, I had two, two responses that made me skeptical. One was like, I felt like there were already all the bands had already formed. I felt like we already have like Talking Heads and all of these other bands. So it, to form a band now is just too, it's just too obvious. It's just too much like following along with everybody else. But, but my other reasoning is that I was insecure about it. I didn't, I, I just, that was one area where I just, I couldn't picture what I would do. Um, I didn't, I didn't picture myself as a musician at all. And so I had very little confidence about it. So he kind of coached me through that whole period. It was his doing, his encouragement. Yeah. He asked me to go listen to some records, you know, because I was like, I don't even know 
exactly what type of instrument you know i would play i mean i i just hear the, the albums as a complete done deal i don't think about it as being like individual performances you know on individual instruments and specialization i mean of course i did know because i knew like who played what and the ramones and led zeppelin but um so yeah he encouraged me to go listen to some records and try to discover what instrument you know i gravitated towards and so i i, I truly do enjoy bass or at least i that underlying energy like say in the ramones and a lot of other bands you know the bass uh is something that i kind of hum along with or really hear and i also thought that it, it just appealed to me the structure of it the idea of just uh, four big fat strings with a big long <laughs> neck you know <laughs> yes i could imagine and did you start to once you picked up the bass did were there some plays that you started to look at and sort of examine a bit more you know because obviously there's there's some you know like paul mccartney or lemmy from motorhead or trevor boulder who was in the spiders from mars you know for david bowie i just wondered if there was anybody that you started to slightly sort of copy to sort of get yourself grounded in the in the art of the bass <coughs> no no not at not at all i mean that that was where both randy and i like took our instruments and started just trying to figure out how do you make how do you make sounds come out of them almost you know it was almost that basic um i, I maybe a little bit from uh dd ramon just that kind of like you know perpetual plucking away that just was always just the same kind of you know rhythm and energy um and i plucked away just like that in a, in, in a sense like i just uh, i had to use a pick i had to strum down you know i didn't know how to strum down and then back up again and i also was like plucking away like trying to get some sound out of uh you know like some gear that wasn't very loud or punchy i wanted it to sound you know like more and so i kept desperately stroking these strings real hard right above the pickup which is probably not the best place to um yes you, know, you, you pick up the click you know you sort of pick up the sound of the pick hitting the string um but i that's sort of where i came into like my own bass sound you know in that it was um uh it, it, and then also we had this idea that each of the band members um initially it's just me and randy and the guitar and the bass are kind of answering each other you know it wasn't a call and response but there was a little bit of that a sense of um one or the other the instruments sort of like you know being more prominent at different times but kind of both finding openings in there for the two instruments to fit together and then when we had the other uh, members of our band so we had drums and vocals there was a desire <clears throat> from the very outset in pylon that all four of those voices were going to be roughly equal in prominence uh through uh volume essentially and also in some ways through how we created openings in the music so that one instrument or the vocals or even the drums could you know have some space you know so 
um, through negotiation and agreement um, in principle, we did try to make it <clears throat> so that all of the instruments were um, in sort of a, on an even plane almost. Yes, and getting, I mean, obviously, essential getting the drama for your rhythm section, but getting Vanessa must have been um, a fantastic moment. Was that kind of um, to give somebody, you know, such a sort of visual sort of and vocal sort of powerhouse, really? Getting Vanessa was, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, a little bit of happenstance and chance is the same way that we got uh, Curtis. And both of them are, are crucial to the band. Um, uh, Randy and I didn't know where we were going with this project. You know, we were just getting it started. And um, we were writing our, you know, whatever, coming up with riffs. And we were even writing lyrics. And uh, once we got Curtis, we were starting to put all of that into the shape of, a, of songs, you know, with parts, with verse, chorus, and bridge, or whatever kind of things, some kind of structure. And then we were trying to decide, like, if we were going to have a vocalist or what. And <clears throat> Vanessa came in and she was she was presented with songs that were already kind of written and even lyrics that were already kind of written. And she took what the words were and just tried to figure out a way to make them fit, you know? And so from the very beginning, um, maybe because she was working with material that was pre-existing, she became very inventive in her phrasing and extremely inventive like from the very start with a lot of the different um, dynamics of her vocal delivery uh, things just like you know going from soft to loud or from um, sort of um, you know people described her vocals in a lot of different ways you know growling and um, different uh, different ways of describing it it's hard for me to describe because I'm just so familiar to Yes, but there's a huge, there's a huge confidence in the vocal, and there's also an amazing presence with her delivery, with it, which must have felt like when the four of you got it together, there was there was a feeling of being a gang, you know, like every band needs to have that moment, even if it doesn't last for long, that you you are sort of a gang. So that that must have felt quite amazing for you and Randy, who'd been just this kind of um, just kind of plucking away, trying to sort of, you know on two guitar, you know, on a guitar and bass and writing these lyrics to have Curtis and then sort of Vanessa as well to sort of quickly bring it together. But was it kind of, looking back at it, was it obviously essential that period when you, it was just you and Randy that sort of gave the band a little bit more structure? I, I, I do think that that um, initial period, which um, at the time it seemed like we um, had been doing that for quite a while, I guess, looking back it was just a matter of you know months but um that that was a that was a period where i guess some of the dna of the band was was being laid down where randy and i were just building up um a, a sense of <clears throat> cooperation collaboration and trust you know i think it it's a little embarrassing to just sit there and be jamming along or whatever and just trying to find something, you know, with somebody making music. I mean, I haven't really uh, done it outside of uh, Pylon, but um, 
you know, it's, it, it requires, it requires like being in some kind of complete accord, I think, at least it did for us. Yes. And we had, we'd had that established already, I guess, as friends and from the stuff about encouraging each other with our art. But yeah, it, it, it really was great that we had uh, plenty of time together before we, before we went into those next steps. Yes. And, and, and then things happened very quickly. I mean, we played um, from February until um, uh, midsummer. Uh, maybe only just five shows. And then Randy went up to DC, Washington, DC to, to do some work with his dad who lived up there. And then, and then we had a gig uh, opening for the gang of four in New York city. So we drove up to DC and we rehearsed in Randy's father's house to get ready to go up and do our very first opening shows in New York, Philly and um, Boston in august so things came together pretty quickly once we um once we had written and sort of solidified some of our songs through just a handful of performances yeah and did you have the material i mean you know because gang of four were, were quite a solid outfit and they'd already sort of released quite a body of work so did you have to quickly up your game and think right we're going to have to add to this and actually do a bit more rehearsal well, we didn't have that much material. Um, and then again, we were, we were just the opening band. Um, uh, and then we were invited back. I mean, we were back uh, just about a month and a half or, or less later back to the same club. And I believe we were headlining at that point. And yeah, we had like, we had a very short set that we were capable of, of presenting. And we would try to hold out like one song in case we had an encore. And so our set was probably something like 34 minutes or, you know, 40 minutes at, at the most, probably. Right. Even as a headlining band. And so we, um, you know, that was just in a way our attitude was. And thankfully, in a city like New York, they could handle it. It was just like, this is what we got. You know, we're giving you what we got. And if it, you know, if this is, if this is good, then, then it's good at 35 minutes, you know, it's not going to necessarily be any better if it goes on for an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, so that was, a, that was an attitude that a bigger city could seemingly um, uh, handle. Um, we found out later on when we started touring a little bit more that we would get to some markets like say, um, Houston, Texas, I think was one of the places when we were just trying to, you know, play in some cities on our way to California. And they said, well, the opening band does two sets and, you know, each set should be like an hour and 15 minutes. And we were like, mm, no, <laughs> <laughs> we just can't do that. You know, we are not equipped to do that. No, you're not. The so, grateful dad. It, it was weird. I mean, we, we were okay in big cities, but yeah, there was, you know, we, we did eventually, of course, build up a bigger repertoire, but. <laughs> so when you cut your first single, which was cool, with the B, the B side being dull, I mean, did that, um, what was that experience like of going into the studio for the first time and uh, recording, you know, material, which was going to be there forever? 
Yeah, I know. Um, and so because we felt like it was, it needed to be, it needed to be our best songs, right? You know, the songs that we had field tested, that we knew people liked them, the songs that we had performed like plenty of times so that we, um, we could nail the performances. You know, we had, we had all the parts figured out and we really, we really knew how to perform these songs. So we had uh, two days to record this single. One day we were gonna record and the next day we were gonna mix. And so the first day we recorded the two songs that we thought were our solid ones, uh, Feast on My Heart and uh, The Human Body. And the next, and we all went home to our families and uh, stayed in the Atlanta area that night. And each of us had been given a cassette of a rough mix from that day's recording. And we started listening to him at home. And I got Randy on the phone and said that I was worried that it was too stilted. You know, we, we, these songs were just too rehearsed. They were too polished and there wasn't enough, um, I don't know, energy or excitement or danger involved in recording them. And we talked to everybody else in the band that night and we decided that we wanted to ask the record uh, producer, Danny, um, could, we, could we start over again the next day and start from scratch and record cool and dub and see if those would sound better. And so it was a, it was a big gamble, but luckily he, he let us talk him into it. And we recorded Cool and Dub, and we just said, this has got to be it, and let's spend the you know, afternoon mixing those two. So we never, we never even finished those first two songs. We never mixed them down or anything. Yes, God. And then, and then obviously, this is quite interesting because you know, with the turn of the decade, it always has a sort of a slight vibe, especially this decade. Let's face it, no one's going to forget it, are they? Um, but did you, did you sort of feel like you were sort of suddenly you know, this was going to be your moment. Because most bands I've interviewed, they have a five, three to five year narrative. And in the UK, you know, they spend a year, 18 months rehearsing. They get together, you know, things are going well, they get that first single. In this country, we'd have John Peel, who was one of the great gateway, you know, the gatekeepers of our time. And then, you know, you get that John Peel session where you'd go to the BBC and record four tracks. And then that first album, lots of touring. So how, so you were sort of, having a very similar kind of um i suppose narrative but you're in america so did that does that have a slightly similar path that um that i just described for you at all i mean yeah it seems like that was definitely the path at the time and um i don't know we probably understood it just from having uh by, by uh having bought records you know we you know, the first records I owned by the Stranglers and Gang of Four and uh, Devo were singles that they put out before they had albums. And then uh, and then there was that big anticipation, like, oh, here was the Gang of Four album, and we could not wait, you know, because uh, uh, we had already played, I mean, um, when we played with them in New York, their album had come out. It probably hadn't even been recorded yet, but... Um, we, Randy and I had a live tape that we had recorded when, when uh, after we opened for them in New York, we recorded their live show just on some basic little recorder. 
on cassette tape and we listened to it so much and be, and became so familiar with with their their song list and then their album came out and we hated it because it was a studio album you know and we had just like gotten so accustomed to the energy of them live um but you know you do eventually get used to it and the same kind of thing um you know seeing other other bands um put out a single and then um, maybe in a second single, but then put out an album. So yeah, that was sort of the path that we, we sort of knew we were on that same kind of trajectory. But, you know, later on, <clears throat> after putting out our second album, which was preceded by even more singles, um, we were starting to run out of, um, uh, uh, you know, spontaneous just you know self self uh, gestating uh, songs and stuff like that and that pathway that was being sort of laid out is like the traditional pathway uh, you know like now that you've put out a new album it's time for you to go tour behind this album and then yes. you know now that your album has been out for x period of time it's time for you to start like putting together some new material or whatever it may be all of those bromides you know all of a sudden became like really annoying to us and uh, we didn't really want to have to fit into that kind of pattern but initially that was the pattern that we were willing to embrace like we had put out a single and and we just immediately started looking forward to an opportunity to be able to put out an album yeah although i i think the thrust of our band was really playing live um, I know because you you did a lot of tours and a lot of support acts. I mean, you know, you were supporting some amazing kind of bands at that stage who were also kind of on their kind of trajectory upwards as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember us as being like a band that wanted to open for very many people, but when we get invited by either the venue or the band. <clears throat> Um, to open, like op opening for the B-52s in Central Park or at Fox Theater in Atlanta, um, opening for Talking Heads by invitation from Talking Heads or their management. We opened for Public Image Limited in Atlanta. That was a dream come true. Um, but we started headlining in New York almost immediately after one or two, you know, shows. Uh, uh, or our second show up there, I think we were headlining, and then we did eventually open up for somebody else. I can't remember now who it was. Um, but yeah, we played a lot of uh, shows in a lot of the cities that um, we that we grew to love and 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 seemed to have a good relationship with the, the either the specific clubs and their audience or just the city as a whole. We had um, we had a great time going around and repeating a lot of these cities on some of these short tours that we did they were usually no more than about two weeks long yes and the uk you did come to the uk didn't you to play yeah that was actually part of the rollout of our album gyrate right and from the very beginning that album was sort of conceived to be put out in both countries uh but through an arrangement and coordination between uh, db records in the us and armageddon in the, in England and um, <clears throat> um, the Armageddon um, part of the contract included you know licensing uh, the album to Canada, Germany, Italy, France. Um, I think maybe even I think it was also released in Spain, 
And so they, they are the ones that put together that tour for us to come over and um, near the end of uh, 1980 and play in, uh, in England. And it was just great. I mean, we, they, they arranged tons of uh, press interviews. We got lots of press. It was usually very positive. Um, we, we did quite a few shows. We had to cancel a few uh, because uh, John Lennon was killed during that time over there, which was changed. It changed everything, you know, it really changed the rest of that tour. That was near the end of the tour. Um, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, we, 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 um, we enjoyed playing every, uh, every one of those shows. Yes, it must always be quite, uh, quite something when, because I think it must be difficult for, you know, musicians, because even though one might dream of doing, you know, having that experience, you know, mostly it doesn't happen, let's face it, most bands don't sort of get off the launch pad, and, but when it does happen, it probably, everything is going so quickly, there's not a, a moment to slow down or, or give yourself a pause, just to think, let's just try to appreciate this and think what we're going to do next and how we're going to manoeuvre it, because I think there probably isn't that much time to have that, that reflective moment or that proper discussion with the rest of the band and possibly a manager. Yeah, we were more or less self-managed, you know, we had, we had people that did our booking and, um, but we, we kind of decided like how much touring we wanted to do and even really where we wanted to go. Yes. And did you, I mean, when you were doing the second album, was it already a feeling that the band, you could see the sort of the, the finishing line that once that was done, you know, <clears throat> you were going to sort of call it a day? No, I don't think so. I don't really recall though um, what our thinking was. Um, it was a, a slower process to get to a second album, um, which is understandable. I think that's true of a lot of bands when they, you know, they record their first album that it's a matter of like, which songs aren't gonna fit. You know, you have to throw some material aside. We had the opposite problem. Um, when we were putting together our second album, because I guess our partly through our touring, um, but just, you know, we got a little older and uh, we were touring a lot. <clears throat> and the idea of us spending all, all of our free time in our rehearsal studio and just constant in, in writing songs at a fever pitch, like we did when we were getting going, that just wasn't happening. So songs were coming a little slower, you know, and, um, that, and then, and then because we weren't ready to work on a new album, <clears throat> we ended up putting out like not just one but two singles. And um, then we finally were like, okay, if we keep if we put those songs on the album, you know, then we're we're pretty close to being <laughs> have enough material for an album, but just barely, like to the point that we even agreed that we would write one song, Yo Yo that we would basically sort of write it in the studio, you know, uh, or at least um, do the instrumentation and arrangement part of it, which is most of it. So yeah, we barely got that uh, record together um, and we were touring uh, for that record, but um, I can't really remember when, um, I, I, it, I don't re really remember the, all the different dynamics. I think we were reading our reviews. Um, 
there were stories of industry people were coming to see us in some of these shows, but we weren't getting any um, any um, invitations to come talk to record, you know, bigger record labels or something like that. Uh, I don't know what we were expecting. Um, other people were expecting things of us, or maybe they were expecting certain kinds of success to unfold for us at that point. I, I don't remember all of that, but it was starting to um, slow down a little bit, I guess. Yes. Yeah, and so did it, did, you know, because I spoke to quite a few people and they talk about the the end of the band and sometimes it happens when, you know, everyone's a bit fed up with each other and they just say, look, it's, you know, I can't bear this anymore. And other times it's like, well, no one's really turned up at the rehearsal. That kind of feels like that's the end of the band without anybody saying. So how did it sort of finish with, with the, uh, yeah, with your band? It, it kind of was precipitated by like an argument between our band and uh, like the music industry. Um, we had a really great booking agent um, and um, we loved all the work he had ever done for us. And it would be like us contacting him and say, we'd like to go out to California. Here are a few of the clubs or cities we definitely want to be sure to hit. And he would book it. Well, he he wasn't supposed to just book something without checking in with us about it but and 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 he did exactly that when he he saw an opportunity <clears throat> for um U2 was coming into the uh states on their first tour and somehow he just decided he had a band that could probably get on the opening slot and he went to go achieve that and he did he he, he convinced whoever that pylon could open for like the first five or six or seven shows and if it was to, if it went well enough that there would be the opportunity to do the entire tour and he called up with this great news and um <clears throat> and i you know we were like no that's not what that's not the way this is supposed to work you know why did you say that pylon wanted to open for you too why did you book us you know <laughs> without even talking to us about it. And he said, well, because anybody in their right mind, you know, in your position would jump at the chance to do this. It's a no brainer. And we were like, well, that's, that's not the way we think. That's not the way we want to be told to do. I mean, we just didn't like any of that. We didn't really like the idea of playing for a band, um, some a band that, that they weren't huge, but they were obviously very well known. And um, we just didn't think that their audience was our was going to be a good audience for us. We just didn't want to do it. And everybody thought we were crazy. So we got together and we were like, what's our problem? Maybe <laughs> we just aren't supposed to be doing this. Because the whole time we were together, we kept proclaiming that we were not musicians and we were not planning on, you know, making this our main thing. And um, we were that 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 one episode just kind of helped us make a decision, you know, like let's just stick to what we always said. Like we'll do this as long as it's fun. Let's just go ahead and and live by what we had said. Like this is the moment, right? This is the moment where we're like, okay, we we were serious. We don't want to open for you two. We don't want to have fights with booking agents. We don't want anyone telling us when we're supposed to be writing new material. We'll just announce a final show and say goodbye on a high note. And our final show was damn good. It was a really <laughs> good performance. 
uh, you know, we ended up releasing that as a record uh, about three years ago, and it's a damn good show. I mean, it's I don't like live albums, but for me to listen to it, I can tell what we were doing at the time, and we were in really good form. Yes, amazing. And we had some good material, and um, and then we just walked away. <laughs> so, God damn. That contributes a lot to the sort of legendary, so-called legendary status, you know, when you walk away at that point. Yes, just saying, look, sorry, you two, we don't want to bother. Because it's kind of weird, because you've, you know, there are like, I suppose from the 80s, the main bands that came from that period, I mean, I'm a massive Smiths fan, so I thought they were just incredible. But there was kind of <clears throat> you two, REM, you know, and probably, I don't know, possibly Simple Minds. I'm not quite sure about them. But, you know, you've got such a connection with, you know, REM as well, because they, they hold you with such sort of high status as well. So it's amazing your kind of connection with these kind of what became, you know, absolute juggernauts of bands, really. Yeah, I was definitely a big fan of Simple Minds during that period and, and beyond too, by the way. Yes, but um, yeah, so, but you must feel very chuffed that um, REM sort of look at you and as such a sort of a band of like, these are the, these are the, these are the real sort of the best band in America and, and such quotes like that. Yeah, they were very generous. Um, they've been generous to a lot of people, a lot uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so, as as wonderful as that is, um, there's nothing surprising about them <laughs> being that um, uh, gracious. I mean, they basically just ha have always um, tried to include other people as they were rising up in their uh, trajectory and such, and they they you know they 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 did it all the way to the end they they would give uh bands opportunities uh, to open for them um including Athens bands including Pylon because we got back together in the late 80s and uh the success of the green album for them had become so um giant that even though they had already toured all of the US it was just determined after they finished up touring in Asia and Europe that they should tour the US again and just go down a little deeper into the market and so it was on that tour that they invited Pylon to come because we had just gotten back together i guess uh partly at their urging yeah. and uh yeah we went and played like uh like 13 or 12 shows with them um and yeah. what was it? And what was it like, sort of reforming the band? Did that come together quite smoothly? Had the issues with management and booking agents had that sort of kind of gone away, so to speak? Well, yeah. In fact, um, the whole format of Pylon reforming was to go uh, to 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 try the band on the other side of that equation, like okay, now we're adults and now we're making a you know conscious decision that we're going to revive this band and become creative and, and, um, and um, successful in, in this like, um, you know, music industry context. So we're going to have a manager. We're going to, we're going to like play the kinds of gigs that people think are, um, you know, going to be useful for us. We're going to try to make a new album you know or record music with like some kind of hot producer and all this stuff so we kind of approached it like we we thought like okay now we're ready to be pylon but be pylon and a real music business kind of like uh orientation because 
if we're going to do it now, you know, we had like uh, three, two or three of the band members had children and they were going to be like quitting or their jobs or taking times away from time away from a career or whatever. So it needed to be more professional. Yes. So and you we tried to have that element come along with us for the second round. And I don't know if it helped or hurt because it raised the bar of like how much, you know, money needed to be generated and on and on and on, you know? Um, but yeah, we, you know, we, um, we tried it that way as well on the theory that the industry or the culture wasn't quite ready to embrace pylon and that we just broke up a little too soon. You know, mm. it was on the theory that if we had just like, hung in there a little bit longer that everything um like some uh opportunities would have come along in a more uh like long-term sustaining kind of yes. uh, opportunities so we went back at it the second time trying to pick it to see if we could pick up the thread and develop those kind of sustaining um conditions and but did it on, on, on reflection because you also brought an album out as well what was the experience of sort of the the second chapter of the band? Well, it was exciting because we still had a lot of fans. We'd only been out of the, uh, out of the uh, game of that for you know, four and a half, five years. Um, also, our reputation had um, not gone south whatsoever. I mean, we, since we quit the way we did, uh, people were still discovering Pylon uh, as a result of our albums, you know. Um, and we really always did feel like we were a live band first and foremost and so the idea that we could just step up and start offering that and and you know live again that was a lot of the appeal to us so um it was very exciting getting going with it um but um and and we were we were pretty diligent and and about rehearsing and you know uh really treating it like a job and that didn't necessarily ruin the um, art, art and creativity part of it, but it also just turned out that it was um, demanding. It was difficult for uh, people with families, and um, kind of starting with Randy, he just got to um, <clears throat> after uh, two and a half, three years of it, he was just like, I just can't, I just can't go on tour anymore. It's just not working out for for you know me and my family or whatever the story was. So, <clears throat> you know, that was a disruptive enough um, decision on his part that it just turned out it was unsustainable to keep the band together. It just wouldn't have worked without touring, so. Yes, and that's, um, yeah, obviously. And then, that, then he had a, that horrendous kind of accident, which must have just been, because you, you two go back so long, that must have felt an absolutely devastating moment when you found that he'd been killed. Well, um, I'll, <clears throat> I wasn't very devastated because um, <clears throat> uh, our management and the band, <clears throat> other band members were, were trying to convince him to think, change his mind or whatever. But when I, when I hear somebody speaking like that, I, my, added, my first impression was like, you can't convince somebody to stick into something if they kind of quote unquote lost the faith. So I, I wasn't, I, I just accepted it pretty much right away <clears throat> but i didn't have as much hanging hanging on the line with it you know um vanessa had given up a job and they were there was it was complicated it, it impacted a lot of people um 
And it, um, it, it, it started an incredibly long dry spell where Randy just kind of um, actively avoided pylon or even having really hardly, you know, just kind of moved on, just moved on real hard into a different, um, into his life and um, left pylon all the way behind. But, you know, people do change over time. And luckily um, he, you know, all the way 15 or so years later, he reached out to us and came to one of my art shows and asked if I would be willing to consider playing together again. So we, <laughs> we got, uh, we all got back on the same page again, but this time just for fun. That was just at the end there before he ended up passing away. Yes, God, no, that was, um, well, it's nice to have that kind of memory. And obviously putting together this box set, when did the idea for this come about? Well, it wasn't my idea. Um, Vanessa, I've heard her answer that question a number of times. And she, um, um, she I guess one of the things, a bit, a bits of unfinished business with uh, DFA records, because we did some reissues, like remastered and reissued, well, I don't remember, remastered for digital um, CDs of our first two albums. And one of them we had done before Randy passed away and we'd started working on the second one, Chomp. And after he died, we were determined to go ahead and finish that with DFA records. But we never really <clears throat> engaged the idea of putting them out on vinyl. So, um, you know, we, we, we weren't happy with some of the business with DFA and or Vanessa was handling our business and paying more attention to it than, than Curtis and I. And um, she started realizing that people were you know, having a hard time buying our music, you know, it was, uh, you know, um, even the, even the CDs were no longer in print, the ones we had done with DFA records. So kind of came from that, like, what do we need to do to make our music available to people again? And um, so severing, um, to, to move on, you know, we, we quit working with DFA records. That meant that even our streaming um, music was no longer um, available. So it was a long process of working through um, a lot of the uh, uh, just the dirty work of like figuring out our publishing and all that stuff and getting everything straight. And then um, people were <clears throat> who we've known for years had access to some of these tapes that we had just kind of lost track of from the studios or whatever. So there was a lot of material that. Um, friend of ours, um, Jason Neesmith started going through and he is a, uh, a producer and um, or sound engineer, um, studio engineer, and um, has done a lot of uh, mastering or remastering of a lot of projects for a lot of big bands. So he's the one that ended up working on um, all these tracks and uh, Vanessa started talking to people giving advice about labels and how to do, um, you know, maybe a box set and that kind of thing, so. Yes, and it must be fun. So, so you got the took first- Took some years. Yeah, I could imagine. So you got the first two albums, but not the third. Is that just to do with record labels and ownership? It's primarily just to um, set out like what part of Pylon, you know, we wanted to contextualize into this one project. You know, so that there's not like a part A and then a part B, 
to the story you know yeah. it's just and then you know a part c like when we got back together just to perform or whatever just telling that story of like part a and letting that be its own you know that's what's in that container that's what's in the book that's what's in the recordings that was um that was you know the era of pylon that is what most people are talking about when they talk about pylon or if they were influenced by pylon primarily from that period so um as to whether or not we have an interest in um releasing uh, making that third album available again i mean that that's something we would be interested in yes well absolutely <clears throat> and it's already you're, you're the, you know the big ones have, have all sold out haven't they because yeah um yeah i'm a little i'm a little disappointed about that in a way because um the box is expensive so it's not like i expected um the demand to be uh that great um and i figured it was just for the people who really wanted it if that's if that's if they could afford it you know that's fine but i was mostly just excited that our, that our music was going to be available again it's on streaming services again um our first single we uh you know made that available last fall as a kind of a precursor to this box thing but what even before the box was announced um and so cool and dub have been on streaming since last fall and there was a seven inch single and now the box has put all this material uh available again plus the first two albums have been re reissued or, or re, re released separately from the box both on vinyl and on cd yes so the core of pylon's music is now back available in streaming vinyl and cd it all sounds great and then the box is just you know a whole lot of extra um information and in terms of both music and uh, imagery and words so there's a lot more content there it's already gone it's just it's just amazing you know so yeah i guess i mean it must be great you know though randy's not with us anymore but for the rest of the band to see the legacy continue because often sort of realized and as you probably with your with your sort of day job kind of archiving stuff and sort of knowing that the baton is going to be passed on or some form of a legacy that will continue because it's not just going to disappear um must feel really enjoyable as a form of like tidying things up i i agree completely i mean you know randy's uh two sons inherited his pylon ephemera and they loaned us um access to his stuff um vanessa and curtis and i had decided agreed um several years ago that we would donate all of our ephemera to, uh, to an archive here uh at the university and um but we didn't get around to doing it immediately and i'm glad we didn't because this box project has come along and then then the box kind of required us to go through all of that stuff to look for all of the interesting you know visual bits and pieces and so it's all been explored as far as we know or most of it has and after we got it all like scanned and photographed and and this book design was uh underway uh Vanessa and I um went through everything one more time and just thought it through and then boxed everything up and took it down and donated it so <laughs> so it's a good feeling to get rid of it and um 
you know, we have more stuff that we can give them. I, I suppose I should write it out somewhere that, you know, that collection can have my bass guitar or something like that. But um, yes, it, 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 it does feel really good to get it um, to compile like that, you know, and yes, we're celebrating Randy, who's not with us anymore. And, but while we were working on this project, I had to remind, you know, Vanessa at one point, I was like, you know, by the time this thing comes out, it, it may be more than one band member is no longer with us. We don't know. Let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's be realistic about it and get it together. Yes, it absolutely. But it's interesting just on mm. a kind of almost last point, but I do notice that sort of there's a passing of time, which is like 25 to 30 years where things suddenly take on much more meaning and somehow I've noticed that there's been quite a few books come out and quite a few films and, you know, even books on fanzines from the 80s. But I noticed there was a film on The Wedding Presents, you know, that album George Best, and there was one on The Go-Betweens and The Chills with Martin Phillips, and there's one on The Slits and The Dolly Mixtures as well. So, they, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that at the time these things happened, people just went, well, that's great, and then you just enjoy it and move on. And then you look back, not just with rose-tinted sunglasses, but you sort of look at it a bit more and listen to it again, or you look at the artwork and you think, okay, this is better than I imagined, really. You know, and I've found that myself finding bands that I missed the first time around in that period of the 80s and thinking, God, this is really good. But during that period, unless you were luckily, lucky enough to either, I don't know, own a copy of the record or go and buy it or whatever it was hard to sometimes actually listen to a record and take a chance just because it got a good review in the music paper so you know often it would come and go and then another record would come and you might pick that one up and then you miss a few more down the line and then life just changes again so it's been quite nice as a fan to sort of go back and listen to records that I missed the first time and also appreciate some of the stuff that happened, especially artwork, you know, album covers and inner sleeves that you think, actually, this has been really good. And I can see why, you know, people are putting things in museums or making films about this, this, this kind of period because it had slightly been missed. You know, you had the 60s, you had, you know, the sort of the, the 70s rock scene, the punk scene, you know, and then, you know, there's like the indie scene sort of gets a bit forgotten because you've got all these other people like, I don't know, Prince, Michael Jackson, you know, and then you get the 90s and, you know, grunge and stuff like that. So it has been interesting that, you know, like with your band, you suddenly find that there's this kind of interest and you think, well, that's great. That's only 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a long time. Um, and a lot of other bands are, you know, you know, also working on box sets and stuff. A Gang of Fours is coming out, um, I think, in December. Um, you know, it, it, it's stunning to me that there's interest in, in music that's 40 years old. Um, uh, I, I talked to somebody about this, and um, when Pylon was forming, you know, music that was 40 years before us, uh, there was no way that we had any way to, you know, benefit from caring about that kind of music it would have been like the Glenn Miller band or something and uh we were just ready to move uh, from where we were move forward we weren't interested in the past but we do live in a different era where people a lot younger than my generation um grew up you know being patient and curious and interested in stuff that uh came um you know before them um and they and they are the ones that read the books and and saw the documentaries about all these bands and listened to the music. So, yes, 
Yeah, it's pretty it's, amazing. It's cool that people are are, are uh, interested in it this this many years later. Absolutely. And just last question: um, <clears throat> if you were if you could have said something to an eighteen year old self, beginning in that interesting world that was music and creativity, if one thing that you've kind of or two things you might have learned from from you know experience and wisdom, I just wondered what you would have whispered in their ear. I have never really thought about that. Um, I mean, a lot of our uh, early cockiness uh, ended up uh, being um, validated, you know. Uh, so in a way, we didn't have any um, really harsh lessons uh, that we learned. But I do think that um, we were a little opinionated and in, in, in a stubborn way you know, like, uh, including like our decision to break up. We're maybe a little lazy, you know? Um, so I, I'm not real sure. I, I would say that maybe a little less um, uh, just waiting for lightning to strike kind of creativity, which just came so easy for so long, uh, could have been um, augmented by a little bit more effort and um, diligent diligence and you know maybe the outcomes of any any of the projects any of the creative projects could have been uh, more gainful but i don't really have that many regrets i mean i've ended up between uh with pylon and a lot of the other things i've done um since then uh, i've really enjoyed almost all of it quite a bit and um in the case of pylon it does keep kind of coming back around to uh give me an a little extra boost or reminder of of that kind of young self, that young kind of like um, sort of uh, experimental, um, somewhat more um, confident self, you know. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's it's quite amazing, you know. As you say, you know, it's like you've had that kind of um, interest in something that you did forty years ago. Not many people will have that kind of experience as you sort of get a bit older thinking actually let's go back to when you were you know back in the teens and early 20s and something you did in 1980 and listen to it one more time it's like god that's that's kind of quite special actually isn't it and i i am grateful that you know the era that we lived in um you know like uh the record label uh when we were putting together the book they they were just just like really stunned at the the, the qu quality and the quantity of ephemera that we had. And, you know, it makes it kind of easy for us to, to find that stuff again, just because we never threw it out. But I, I have to say that it, in my own experience as a photographer and a uh, early adopter of like every, uh, every kind of like platform and digital, you know, uh, tool of production and all this stuff, as confident as I am in all of that, uh, all of those areas, I have to admit that a lot of my digital assets are are, are, are things that I, ca I I can't find them now. I can't lay my hands on them. They they've you know they've been lost or um, or are, have been completely lost. And so I do think that we live during an era where what we had was so tangible. Yes, I do. I do. I do fear like for how 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 um how good of a record will there be you know for people whose um 
immense output and creativity uh, is uh, is floating around or is dependent on platforms that are maybe offered, you know, at least for a time being for free by some company. And then later on their policies change and all of your uh, stuff in the cloud is, you know, all of that, I, I worry about that. I mean, and so it was easy for us to find like negatives and Polaroids and prints and clipping, press cl clippings. And, yes, absolutely. And, and what a benefit, you know. Um, it's hard for me to even know how to archive the press we're getting now. What, you know, somebody asked me, they're like, well, how are you archiving this? And I was like, I'm just bookmarking it. You know? <laughs> is that yes. is that link gonna work two years from now probably not you know oh yeah that's true my god i know but anyway look this has been well thank you michael for ever so much for giving me the time for this and uh, i will send you a link for the interview as well you can always yeah, use it yeah, and also you. i'll send it to your um record company um i can't remember his name but um yeah brady yeah brady that's the yeah man. he's keeping tabs on all of that stuff too and he'll help he'll help um you know share it and um oh, he'll, he'll he'll appreciate it yeah very much oh, i do fantastic. too yeah absolutely thank you, well, look, thank you so much for your time and um you know it's just brilliant to uh I must admit, I love archiving stuff so um, this was really up my street because there's a there's just briefly there's a record label in uh, the UK called Cherry Red Records and they seem very good at sort of just going back constantly putting this together getting really good booklets getting lots of you know good writing and uh, putting it out, out there so um, I think it's great actually I do love a good archive <laughs> you know. awesome well thanks Excellent. so much yeah we'll have a great evening you know. thanks again Thank you so much. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. There right, you bye. go. There you have it. How to say goodbye in a very concise way or not. Anyway, I love leaving those bits in because um, they're always slightly fumbling, really. That's being British or English for you. Anyway, that was uh, me in conversation with the member of Cylon. That was Michael Lachowski, Lachowski um, talking about uh, the band, musical world and all that kind of groovy stuff. Thank you. Forgive me the time. Anyway, if you want to contact me, David Eastall, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86Show. And also, all these interviews have been archived. If you want to know anything about any 80s indie band or even 70s or 90s, you could probably find them here. So just look at them for look at them on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great evening, night, day and the rest of the year. Goodbye.